Matthew chapter 20 is our chapter for this morning, and if you want to open there, um, we're going to look at, um, sorry, John 21. I've got the wrong book and the wrong chapter. John 21 is where we're going this morning. And um, none of us is a stranger to failure, and it's probably come into our lives more often than we had expected, and we can look back with regret on situations that just did not work out well. And the Bible has stories of people who failed and recovered from their failure. And those stories give us hope. And one of those great stories has to do with Peter, someone who had a a fall, but he came back. He crumbled in the hour of testing, but He got back on his feet, and God worked in his life in an amazing way. So we're going to pick up this story in John chapter 21, verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. Well, the disciples had just returned to their home turf, They had left Jerusalem, they had headed home, it's about a four-day walk, incredible things had happened in Jerusalem. Their beloved Messiah had been crucified, their world was dashed to pieces, and then three days later, um, he showed up again, and it left them with their heads spinning. It was the most incredible thing that they had ever experienced. And they were told to go to Galilee and that Jesus would meet them there. So they made the trip and waited and waited, and Jesus didn't show up. And finally, Peter said, look, guys, I'm going to go fishing. And six other disciples joined him, and they head out into the lake in a boat. Well, Peter was an expert fisherman. That was his trade. Fishing was something that he knew about. Um, He hadn't done so well as a disciple of Jesus. When the chips were down, Peter had failed the Lord. Um, When the Lord was arrested and was on trial, Peter was outside in the courtyard, warming himself by the fire, and someone came along and said, hey, weren't you with Jesus? I'm sure you were with Jesus. And Peter said, nope, never heard of him. And three times he denied knowing the Lord And when he realized what he had done, he wept bitterly. He had failed Jesus catastrophically. He did what he had promised that he would never do. He had blown it badly, and when push came to shove, he bailed out. He tried the God thing. He tried following Jesus, but when the test came, he failed. Uh, Maybe this discipleship thing wasn't for him. It wasn't working so well, and maybe he should just stick with fishing. So now he's in the boat, and there with six of his friends. They fish all night, and they come up empty. Not one fish. 
So here we have a bunch of disciples. They're frustrated. They feel like failures. They hadn't done so well at being disciples, and now they can't even catch fish. So this was not a good moment. And probably there's a lot of people like that. They feel like a failure. They feel like their life is fruitless. And maybe they're even plain fed up with the whole thing. But then we read here in verse 5, When the morning had now come, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Then Jesus said to them, Children, have you any food? Hey, fellows, catch any fish? Uh, so, you know, here's these guys. They're, they're frustrated. They feel like failures. But you know what? They have a friend. They have a wonderful friend. Before going to the cross, Jesus said to them, um, No longer will I call you servants. I have called you my friends. And what does their friend do? Well, he shows up right in the middle of their failure, their fruitlessness, their fed-upness. He comes and he stands on the shore. Here's a wonderful thing about having Christ in your life and having Christ as your friend. You can be sure that he will not give up on you you can be sure that he will not give up on you. He will stick with you even if you fail. The Bible talks about a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Well, that's the Lord Jesus Christ. We might fail, but he won't. We may be faithless, but he remains true to his word. We might even be tempted to be ashamed of him but he is not ashamed of us. We have our ups and downs. He never does. And there's a wonderful promise that Jesus made in John chapter 6, verse 37, and he says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will not cast out. That promise has a, an emphatic negative, and, and uh, scholars say literally it means the one coming to me I will never, never turn away. And you have two negatives piled on top of each other that add intensity to what the Lord is saying. I will most certainly never, never cast out. So let that sink in. Never. And somebody might say, well, you don't understand. I really messed up. But he says, I will never turn you away. But I ended up doing that which I promised I would never do. And he says, I will never turn you away. I'm not sure if I can even manage this Christian thing. And he says, I will never turn you away. Whoever comes to me, I will never turn away. That's the kind of friend that we have. In the last letter that Paul wrote, in the very last chapter, the apostle has this phrase, only Luke is with me. And someone has said that that's one of the sweetest phrases in the New Testament. Paul was forsaken by all others, but Luke 
Luke stuck with him right to the end. God bless that man. He was a faithful friend. When everyone else bailed out, Luke stayed. He was a great friend for the Apostle Paul. And Luke reflects something of the character of Christ, the best friend of all. The disciples had their moments of failure, but he was there for them, and his faithful love endures forever. Catch any fish? Well, he knows they haven't caught a thing. And so here's the Lord saying, friends, how, how's it going? Well, it, it wasn't going that well. Later, when they do catch fish, they count them, and they're able to say they have 153 fish. And not just 153 old fish, 153 large fish. You notice fishermen always put that part in. But at this moment, there are no fish to talk about, you know. Actually, somebody pointed out that Peter uh, never catches fish unless Jesus is around. And um, so Jesus does hear what he did when Peter first got to know the Lord in Luke chapter 5. He gives a command and he says here in verse 6, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. Now, Peter has no idea who this man on the beach is. He's too far away to see clearly. He doesn't know if this fellow knows anything about fishing, but the man says, throw your nets out and maybe they're just too tired to argue and they give it a try. So it says in verse 6 at the end, so they cast and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of the fish. Suddenly their net comes alive. It's bursting with fish. It seems that Jesus gave the word and every fish in Lake Galilee hit the side of their boat and there were more fish in their net that they could pull into the boat. Here's another thing about having Christ as your friend. Not only will he not give up on you, but when he tells you to do something, he will give you the power to carry it out. And that's a very interesting thing because there are a lot of commands in the Bible that are frankly impossible. Forgive 70 times 7. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you. There's a few for starters, right? And we say, there is no way I can do that. Love my enemies? You have to be kidding. After what they did to me, you have no idea what they did. Forget it. Forgiveness is not an option. Or how about loving people who disagree with you on topics like the pandemic? Well, there's a lot of nastiness going on out there, isn't there? And it seems like uh, the media is radicalizing everybody. And Jesus commands us to love our enemies. Is he kidding? Uh, no, he's not. Here's the thing. His command comes with something extra we call grace. And not only does he tell you to do something, but he provides the strength to do it. Do you remember the story in Mark chapter 3 when Jesus was in a synagogue? And there was a man there who had a, 
a paralyzed hand, and the Lord was going to heal this man. And so he calls him to come forward. And so Jesus speaks to him, and he says, stretch forth your hand. Now, this man could have said, Lord, that's my problem. I can't move my hand. If you ask me to sing, I'll sing. If you ask me to jump, I'll jump. If you ask me to run, I'll run. But my hand is what I cannot move. Please ask me to do something else. And Jesus says, stretch forth your hand. And he asks him to do precisely what he could not do. Kind of like a lot of commands in the Bible that we do not seem to have the strength to carry out. Stretch forth your hand. And the man hears what Jesus said, basically probably saying inside of him, says, okay, you're telling me to do what I can't do. If you're saying it, I'm going to obey you, but you're going to have to give me the wherewithal to do what you're saying. So he decides to obey, and his hand was healed. That's very interesting how the Lord went about that, because it kind of teaches us how the Christian life works. We run into these commands, impossible to do, and we say, Lord, I can't do this. But if you are telling me to do it, I'm going to obey you, trusting you to give me the power to do what you say. There's a, an old hymn that we used to sing called Trust and Obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to do two things. Not just obey, but trust and obey. You see, if it was just obey, we, we'd, be, we'd be lost. We can't do that, but that's where the trust comes in, doesn't it? You say, okay, Lord, I'm going to do what you say, but you're going to have to give me the power. <laughs> and uh, when the Lord calls us to do something, he provides grace to carry out what he has asked us to do. So here we have this crazy catch of fish. The net is so full they can't get it into the boat. And suddenly the lights go on for the disciples. And John, one of the group, says, wait a minute. A strange command from a stranger on a beach, a miraculous catch. Where have we seen this before? It's deja vu. It's the Lord. And what's Peter's reaction? Well, he had seen this happen before three, time, three years earlier. And you remember, on that occasion, his reaction was to recoil and say, Lord, depart from me because I am a sinner. But Peter had now spent three years with Christ. He had come to know him. And what Peter does now is exactly the opposite of what he did then. Verse 7, that disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. This time, instead of trying to get away from Jesus, he jumps off the boat and heads to the shore. Well, this is remarkable. Peter leaves his companions to deal with that net full of fish, and he's off like a shot, heading for the beach. Evidently, there is someone there who means more to him than fishing or anything else. What has changed in Peter? Has he become less sinful since that first miraculous catch of fish? No, there's still a lot of failure in his life. What has changed is that he 
knows more about Christ. He knows that Christ is the one you want to run to with your failure and your frustration and your fruitlessness. And Peter has come to know the heart of Christ, and he wants to get to where Jesus is as fast as he can. What does your sin make you want to do? So often it makes me want to avoid the Lord and stop praying and put God on hold. Peter is not doing that. He's swimming for the shore. And what Peter does says a lot about Christ, doesn't it? Verse 8, But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, about 200 cubits, dragging the net with fish. Then, as soon as they had come to land, they saw a fire of coals there, and fish laid on it, and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish which you have just caught. Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to land full of large fish, 153. And though there were so many, the net was not broken. So here's the Son of God who just a few days before resurrected from the dead. He triumphed over death and sin, breaking the curse of sin. What took place was huge. It changes everything, and he is the mighty conqueror. And what is he doing now? Well, he's there on the beach. He's getting a fire going. He's uh, blowing on hot coals. He's laying out the bread rolls, and he's preparing breakfast for some tired, hungry fishermen. And he says to, the, he says to them, bring some of the fish which you have just caught. I love that part. He doesn't say, why don't you bring some of the fish that I helped you catch? And he speaks as if he had nothing to do with it. Um, some of the fish which you just caught. Uh, so modest, so humble, so unassuming, he makes no mention of the miracle that he just pulled off. And so now he's grilling the fish, and when everyone is there, he says, okay, gather around, let's have some breakfast so this is the Lord of glory, and he's doing a cookout on the beach. He's enjoying a meal with his friends. They're having some freshly caught fish from the lake, and it's delicious. The cook was the creator, and probably fish never tasted so good as on that day. What a wonderful friend. He doesn't just do spiritual activities in the service of God. He also does barbecues on the beach to the glory of God. <laughs> he doesn't just do ministry, he also does fishing. He doesn't just preach and heal, he also makes campfires and he makes a real good breakfast. So that wasn't a Bible study or a prayer meeting that morning on the beach, it was a barbecue on the beach. That doesn't sound very spiritual, does it? But this is the Son of God. This is the one who said, if you've seen me You've seen the Father. He is God become visible. We can't see God, but we can look at Jesus and know exactly what God is like. He was full of grace and truth, and Jesus is the clearest picture of God this world has ever seen. 
And I find that to be a thrilling thought because we have never ever seen anyone as wonderful as Jesus. And if God is like Jesus, that's the best news that ever reached planet Earth, bar none. What is God like? He is exactly like Jesus. That's a wonderful piece of news, isn't it? So now, this one who shows us what God is like, he's the cook. The Lord of heaven is doing a barbecue on the beach. And he's enjoying breakfast in the freshness of the morning with his friends on the shore of Galilee. Folks, the place where we live is God's good world. Um, a lot of nasty things happen, but this planet, God made it, and he declared it to be good, and he made it to be enjoyed. He designed it that way. Paul said that the living God gives us all things in abundance to enjoy. And there's a reason why you enjoy good food and appreciate beautiful art and vibrant colors. There's a reason why you can enjoy the passing seasons and the sound of children's laughter. There's a reason why you love mountains and forests and conversations with friends, while you are th why you are thrilled with rich harmonies and the sounds of nature because you were made by God to enjoy God's good earth. It was made to be enjoyed. And if anyone should enjoy creation, it is those people who know God as their father. So far from being unspiritual, the enjoyment of the good world that God, that God made, it's a component of a healthy spirituality. We are not Gnostics who believe that somehow matter is evil or unspiritual. God appears to love matter because he made an awful lot of it. And as Christians living in God's good world, we celebrate that the fact that every good and perfect gift is from above. And the whole earth is full of his glory, the Bible says, and we need to have eyes to see that and hearts to rejoice in it and to give thanks to the maker of it all. But now we have Jesus and his disciples sitting around a campfire. And there's a matter for the resurrected Christ to attend to. Peter had failed the Lord dramatically. And this is a good moment to sort things out with Peter. There had been a previous encounter that Luke and Paul mentioned, but it seems that there was still something else to resolve. I wonder if Peter was not doubting if he could still be part of the apostolic team and be a member of that group. And here Peter is given the opportunity to replay his earlier fireside denial of Christ. Wouldn't you love a chance to replay the things you've gotten wrong in life? A chance to redo them and to get them right? A chance to patch things up? Well, there on the beach, Peter gets that chance. He had denied Christ three times, and now he has the opportunity to confess his love for Christ three times. And three times, Christ commissioned him to feed his sheep. This event has been called a threefold grace 
for a threefold denial. I love the way the Lord ministers to this man who had failed miserably. You mean you're not going to write me off? You mean there's still a place for me in your service? Yes, Peter, I have work for you. I want you to feed my sheep. Verse 15, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. What a wonderful friend. He's not going to give up on you. When he tells you to do something, he will give you the power to do it. And here's one more thing. When we fall, this friend will be there to pick us up. The question never was if Jesus loved Peter. Jesus loved Peter all the way to the cross. He loved Peter all the way to hell and back. The love that Jesus had for Peter had not changed. You should realize that you can never sin your way out of God loving you. You cannot blunder your way out of God loving you. As a matter of fact, there's nothing that you can do or say that will make God stop loving you. Your sins are not that powerful. Even on your worst day, the Lord is saying, I'm not budging. I'm not giving in. I shed royal blood for you. I gave myself for you. You can't talk me out of this. My love for you is not going to stop. You are mine, and nothing is going to change that. The trouble with sin is not that it stops Jesus from loving us. The problem with sin is that it stops us from loving him. It doesn't change God. It does a number on us. It destroys us. It's toxic. But here around this charcoal fire, you remember the last time Peter was near a fire? Things didn't quite go so well, but now he's standing by a fire again, and he has the chance to reverse his threefold denial and affirm his love for Christ three times. And in return, Jesus has a threefold word for him Feed my lambs, take care of my sheep, feed my sheep. So here the master is ministering to a wounded follower. He's going to raise him up. He's going to get him back on his feet. Peter gets restored and he gets recommissioned. And God is going to use him in an, an amazing way in Jerusalem to be the main spokesman for God in that city. So here's a Christ who comes to us in the midst of our failures, our frustrations, our, our fed-upness. And how good it is to know that when there is failure in your life, he comes not to accuse, but to assist and to help. The disciple who had failed and was fruitless and frustrated was raised up and used by God in mighty ways.
53 days after denying the Lord, Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost. Full of the Holy Spirit, he preached a powerful sermon and 3,000 people turned their lives over to Christ. That was 53 days later. And a few days after that, 5,000 people were converted when Peter was preaching. 53 days later, Peter was not doing penance. He was preaching. And he ended his message like this. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The forgiveness of sins. That was a subject Peter knew a little about. He was a forgiven man preaching about forgiveness. And what a fabulous forgiveness we get from God. He forgives, he cleanses, and he restores. Now here's a question. Whenever Peter heard a rooster crow, what went through his mind? Did it remind him of that night when Peter denied his Lord and the rooster crowed three times? Did he cringe every time he heard a rooster? Did he flagellate himself and say, I blew it, I messed up, I'm such a worthless sinner, I'm such a failure? That's where a lot of people live. They can't let go of the past. They keep carrying the load. They hold on to their guilt and their shame and they do not come to rest in the forgiving grace of God. They think their past is unforgivable. It's not. They think that there is no hope for them. There is. They can't accept that God could really love them. He does. They struggle to believe God's forgiveness is available for them. It is. What did Peter do every time he heard a rooster crow? Yes, it reminded him of his failure, but he, he stood firmly in the grace of God. He laid hold on the forgiveness of Christ, and he lived in the good of it. He lived in the reality of God's forgiveness. And that's where we need to live, isn't it? Because we all have stuff we're ashamed of. But let the roosters crow and let the enemy accuse. There is something more powerful than that. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. That's the gospel, and that is very good news. So what a, a wonderful friend we have. He's not about to give up on you. And when he calls you to do something, he will give you the power to do what he asks. And if we fail, this friend is going to be there to pick us up. A.W. Tozer once said that unquestionably, the highest privilege granted to man on earth is to be admitted into the circle of the friends of God. The highest privilege. If you are not in that circle, if you haven't come into this wonderful friendship, here's some good news. 
the Son of God paid with his blood so that you might come into a relationship with God. And when you trust him as your Lord and Savior, not only does he give you forgiveness, he brings you into friendship with God. And this is the friendship that we were created to enjoy. And life only starts to make sense as we live it with this wonderful friend. The, the act of surrender to God's story, as Peter discovers at the end of this gospel, changes us forever. Peter thought he could go back fishing, but he spent the night on the lake and he caught nothing. He learned, as the title of a well-known novel puts it, you can't go home again. To know Christ is to never be the same. It means you have a new identity, a new destiny, a new mission. There are sheep to feed, widows to visit, orphans to help, children to bless, neighbors to help. And uh, we have a wonderful friend who accompanies us and calls us to those activities. He doesn't always do things on our schedule, and sometimes he shows up and we don't even recognize it's him. Following him does not just mean feeding sheep, it also involves breakfast on the beach and campfires by the lake. It means that we have a friend who sticks closer than a brother and no one is as wonderful as him. John closes his gospel and he does so in a way very different from all the other gospel writers that have the master ascending and disappearing on a cloud into the sky. John closes with Jesus walking along the beach, talking to a group of disciples. He did ascend to heaven and he will return, but the Holy Spirit guided John to end his book this way and to record this story that was evidently engraved in his memory. It's the picture of Jesus present with us, walking the shore of our common life, having breakfast with us, he will be with us when we cast nets into empty waters. He is with us and will not leave us even when we fail. He is there to raise us up and to help us move on. He is there to make our lives an instrument of blessing. This is our friend, our wonderful friend.